Welcome to Breakout Investors. Today we are speaking with the management of Dime Core Mining, ticker DMIFF, specifically the company's chairman and CEO, Dean Taylor. Joining me on today's call is Breakout Investor Florian Buschek. This call is being recorded on August 3rd, 2021, and will be distributed via the Breakout Investor channel on YouTube and via our podcasting network. Look for Breakout Investor content wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We are on Apple, Spotify, Audible, and most other platforms. Supporting materials for today's discussion will be posted on on the Breakout Investor discussion app, which is located at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The application and much of the research content is free. After registering and logging in, use the search bar at the top right of any page. Type in the ticker and the result will give you a link to the research post with this presentation and to other discussion and research relating to today's company. Those of you already on the Breakout Investor platform can share your questions for the company using the Discuss tab in Florian's breakout room. So let's get started by me handing the microphone over to Florian, who will speak speak briefly about his interest in DimeCore and then turn the call over to management. Florian? So DimeCore is South African diamond mining company. I've been a shareholder for some time now. Um, learned about the story about six months or so ago, more than six months, last December. And it's a very interesting story. And before I talk a lot uh, and repeat what Dean would say anyway, I would say let's get started and then right afterwards into into some questions. No worries. Thank you, uh, guys. I appreciate you taking the time today and everybody else taking the time to uh, find out a little bit about our company. I put together a presentation last night um, that that is kind of a general overview of the company for people that maybe, uh, you know, maybe don't know quite as much as, as what Florian knows about the company. So hopefully it's helpful in giving you an overview of what uh, what we've done and, and where we're at. And then uh, certainly once we finish the presentation, I'm happy to answer any questions that uh, I can. So uh, as we go forward, obviously we always have our uh, our cautionary statement in here. Uh, so we'll be talking about some forward-looking stuff possibly. So we always put this into it. Um, when I start with a company uh, overview, really I kind of try and give guys an idea of what, what we're about. The uh, We're a production-focused company uh, with a proven history of supplying diamonds to the world market. Um, we do exploration in, in terms of, uh, you know, properties that we have in terms of expanding and then that, but ultimately our, our job and our focus is to get diamonds out of the ground and get those to select buyers around the world that we have. And, and so we're really a production cash flow focused company. Um, we do have a strategic alliance with, uh, with Tiffany and company. Uh, Tiffany's invested about $10 million at the beginning of this. Um, once we acquired it from De Beers, they came in right away. It's not an offtake agreement. It is a strategic alliance. Um, the project that we have, we're now in the final stages of development. Uh, it's called the Cronadora project. Um, and it is co-located. And when we mean co-located, we mean co-located where our plant sits about a thousand meters from the main pipe of De Beers big flagship Venetia diamond mine. It's uh, Venetia is probably somewhere around a US four, four and a half billion dollar spend by the time it, it's all said and done. Um, it's now moving underground, um, about a 2.1, $2.5 billion uh, cost to doing that. 
Um, and we'll talk about Venetia a little more and where this project and, what, and its importance to us is. Um, as I've said, we're we're currently in the phase right now where we're doing what's called large-scale trial mining, and that's underway. That really was aimed at providing us with cash flow. Uh, we've demonstrated historically our ability to reach profitability is is done at very, very low carrot numbers. Um, but essentially, uh, we've spent about $70 million roughly in development of this project to date. It's basically done. Um, we have very significant infrastructure in place and it's been converted over and it has a 30-year mining right uh, in place as well. Um, the stones that we get, we get a very high percentage of uh, <clears throat> gem quality stones. Um, there is very significant growth potential uh, here as well. The idea with this was always to get it up and running, get supplies going, get to profitability and then ultimately be able to expand out into the majority of the property, about 90% of the area that we believe has uh, you know, resources and diamond resource on it is really yet to be uh, you know, identified. So the first order of business was get it up, get it permitted, get it running, get it profitable. And then as we go forward, drill, find stuff and just continue to build on it and grow from there. Um, the Alliance with Tiffany's, um, I'll briefly go over this. Tiffany's is actually a shareholder. As I said, they provided about 10 million in financing. Uh, it was done under about 60% of it was a term loan, 40% was convertible into shares. Uh, as of today, there's about four and a half million that's been accrued. We obviously with COVID and that, Tiffany's is obviously a very willing partner. Um, it's being accrued, it's just sitting right now, but we'll eliminate that. We've essentially paid them back the 10 million. Um, they've converted some, uh, about four and a half million sits on the books right now. And we'll obviously address that uh, as we go forward. Um, what they did was in exchange for the 10 million, um, they secured a first right of refusal. So they can acquire up to 100% of the stones that we recover from this during the life of the project, but it's not an offtake agreement, as I've said. Um, they pay fair market value for the stones, whatever the highest bid is, they, they match that. Really, this whole thing was designed uh, to be a source. Um, as we look at the diamond industry, it's not a well-followed industry, and I don't think people really understand just how scarce uh, natural diamonds are and how much scarcer they're going to be in the future. Um, we did retain the, the right, anything over a 10.8 carat uh, size diamond is what we refer to in the industry as a special. We excluded those from the agreement because it's a little bit tough to, uh, you know, to put those types of stones in there. The pricing gets a little wacky on them. So, so we exclude those from the agreement. But the key is that uh, really this is about supply and Tiffany's is not uh, overly concerned about uh, what the price of it is. They just want the good stones. So as we go forward here and look at this, so this Cronendora project at Benicia, you know, why is this significant or why is it, it it's such an attractive deal? When we look at it, the first thing you have to do is really understand what is Venetia and, and what is that all about? It was essentially the third largest diamond mine in the world. Um, within the industry, it's well known that it's basically De Beers flagship. It generated a tremendous amount of money for them. Uh, approximately 50% of South Africa's yearly production comes from here, probably way more than that now. Uh, there's not really that much left in this South African area. Um, at its peak production, to give you an idea of the volume and what we're talking about here, 
from the open pit, it was doing about 750,000 carats a month or about 9 million carats a year when it was in open pit. So it's it's a very, very big deal. Um, it is a very high percentage of gem quality diamonds, gem or near gem, probably as much as about 60% um, is our estimate. And they do get large stones. Their largest to date uh, is about a 315 carat stone. Um, they set their cutoff, I think it's around 32 mil on the upper side. So there could be larger stones in there, um, but effectively they feel that that's, that's the top end of things. So anything that would be over that, they would actually crush. We'll probably go and set our, our uh, upper cutoff at a little bit higher. Um, but obviously when you're talking about a $4.5 billion mine, you know, the, the infrastructure where you have paved roads, I mean, literally you drive on a paved road to the gates, you go through either the Venetia security or you turn left and go through ours. Um, we have use of a full paved airport, the security benefits. I mean, there's just a tremendous, tremendous amount of, of benefit that you have when you're co-located with something like that, suppliers, you name it. It's, it's a big, big benefit. Um, when we look at this deposit, now this is from De Beers. When we purchased this project, um, essentially this was out of an internal mineral resource estimate document or that they had. It was not a public document until we bought it. But by their estimates, you can see there, it shows about on the right size, it, it shows present surface and you can see the open pit. You can see that the pipe comes up. And what their estimate was, was that about a thousand vertical meters of this pipe was shifted and eroded off of here. Now we know that essentially the, it was about 50 million tons of the pipe that was, that was shifted. We know that Venetia's grade is probably at least hundred carats per hundred ton. So about 50 million carats have been displaced off of the top of this, this pipe. It's not been eroded. This is not an alluvial. This is not something like you see in the middle orange where a river goes over, drags it down, only the big stones survive. This is actually a direct shift in displacement. It's the only one known in the world that occurred like this. And what we secured was basically a land position of about 5,800 hectares directly adjacent to Venetia in the known direction uh, of the displacement. And so this presents a, a significant opportunity. We're never gonna find uh, basically 50 million carats, but even if you're talking 20% of that, 10% of that, you're still talking a billion to $2 billion US dollars at, at today's value. So it's very, very significant for the cost uh, that, that it costs to acquire and develop this. Um, when we look at this, this is a satellite overview. As I've said, we acquired, you can see the two properties outlined in white, Cronin and Dora. Um, it's about 5,800 hectares or just under 15,000 acres. Um, it is co-located, as I said, with the Venetia, with the big, uh, big mine of Venetia. Um, it is the only displacement, like I said, it's the only one in the world that's been identified where you have this major primary source, a proven source, where you've got a direct shift in erosion off of it. Um, the nice thing for us is this is not $40 a ton stuff, like we're talking about open pitting Venetia or, or maybe more going underground. This is surface mining. The deposit sits, uh, it's never really seems to go more than about 15 meters from surface to bedrock. And if you can imagine it, this is just simply like this material has been displaced down from the higher ground of Venetia down to the lower ground. So all we do is simply strip mine and surface mine this out down to bedrock. There's no blasting, there's no underground. We're targeting uh, and think, uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work over the years on this and it, 
you know, we're, we're going to probably in the end target an all-in operating cost of somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, potential to be able to get down to maybe $5 a ton all-in. So it is ultimately one of the, the best and lowest cost operations in the world. When you look at that, you'll see that there's a yellow area that uh, is selected. We, we permitted about 657 hectares of the main area that was identified and, and we drilled about 600 holes in, in this area along with what De Beers had done. They had done some large diameter drilling, some bulk sampling. So we put all that together. When you do these types of deals, even though it's permitted, you, you really permit the areas you want. Um, obviously, 657 hectares is a very large area. The more area you permit, the more you put up in rehab liability. As we move outside that area, it's a very straightforward process and will increase the liability. Maybe, maybe not um, in the sense that once we're done with this area, it'll be re rehabilitated. So we'll keep expanding that out. Um, the growth potential, as you can see here, a very, very large portion of this property um, has not been, uh, we have not done anything in terms of it. We've never really worked anywhere on the property where we haven't got diamonds. And we feel pretty strongly from the stuff that's going on right now. If you look on the map and you see that Crone 104 MS uh, written part, we think there's there's quite a large potential right now that uh, the flow that we're looking at on the left side right now may actually be a not the primary one we think that the primary one may have gone to the right so we'll start some efforts on that uh you know starting next year and that'll be you know sort of where we talk about the upside potential um the diamonds uh, are are quite amazing um if you look on the right these are actually pictures of actually the the stuff uh, the diamonds that come out uh, the one on the bottom everybody sort of sometimes thinks that's cut that is the largest stone we've pulled out of the project to date um, and that is exactly how it appears out of the ground. It's one of the largest octahedrons in the world. It's 91.7 carats. And like I say, we do expect we're going to see some stuff, uh, you know, potentially up to maybe 300 plus carats in size. Now, we've pulled about 160,000 carats out uh, to date just from this testing and commissioning. We did that to essentially try and minimize dilution and, and to fund the project as we did it. So that money has been simply dumped back in. Um, our initial dollar per carat on all that, if you look at it, was about $170 US average. Um, the worldwide average is probably around 90 or so. Um, so it's quite a bit above that, even with that. Now that number is skewed a little bit to the small uh, or to the lower side due to the, the inclusion. When we were first developing the plant, we did a lot of work on fine material and we stockpiled a lot of the stuff that would have the larger stones in it. Um, so we think that's a little low. It's about 27 million US in revenues from that initial work that we dumped back in. But now as we, we've finished off the, the majority of the plant and we start going into the areas and, and managing, uh, processing all the material, we've seen in the recent sales now that, that the average dollar per carat, it, it's gone up dramatically. Um, whether or not we can maintain 300, um, that's a phenomenal number. Um, we sort of felt like, uh, you know, $200 US a carat was definitely attainable. But in this market with the shortages and stuff, uh, you know, it could well be that we have the potential to get up into that $300 uh, mark. Certainly everything we're seeing at this point indicates that's possible. Um, it is, like I said, a high percentage of gem and near gem quality. Um, the diamonds are essentially the same as the sorts. That's what you have to understand here is this is not a separate deposit. This is actually Venetia material. And uh, so again, what we're getting here is, is we're getting access to the same diamonds of Venetia. Yes, they're diluted, 
um, to a large extent uh, as opposed to what would be in the pipe, but uh, also the operating cost is, is one-tenth, so it, it's all relative. Um, we see it a very uh, attractive size frequency distribution. We had, when we acquired it, um, we have a, uh, a 9 million carat one-year run of uh, diamonds all documented uh, that from the Venetia pipe. What we've done is we've taken all the diamonds we recover, we lay that over top, and so obviously we confirm that yes, it's a 100% certainty that these are the diamonds. Um, what we tend to see too is, is that we get a lot of fine diamonds that are very, very high quality. We also get uh, good stones in the one to five carat zone. That's typically what most of the big buyers of gem stuff want. It cuts down a one carat rough cuts to about half of what uh, the size is typically. So, you know, one to five carat gives you sort of a half a carat to a two and a half carat stone. That's obviously a sweet spot for engagements and things like that. Um, proven potential for significant larger diamonds, as I've said, we, we got the 91.7. Um, it was a bit of a fluke. It was just in an area. Um, we had to actually, believe it or not, play around with that stone to get it to go through the screens that we were using at that time. It was very tricky. So it probably shouldn't have even been recovered, and it was a little bit of a fluke, uh, given the work we were doing at that time. But we have about a half a million tons of material that we would expect to see large stones in that's, that's stockpiled. Um, we'll probably start running that towards the end of the year, and, and that's a, something we want to get into as well. Um, the main thing to understand here is gem quality rough diamond supplies are really becoming stressed. We've seen a lot of big mines that have gone off. It's not a real well understood industry. Um, the world eats about 130 million carats of diamonds a year. And that number is gonna be very hard to maintain going forward. If you take all of the diamond mines in the world right now, the resource reserves are known very, very well. Um, you've got probably maybe 20 years left of natural diamonds and that's about it. Um, if all of us went out tomorrow and found the next Venetia, um, we might get, like I say, maybe eight, nine, 10 million carats a year out of it but ultimately we're gonna be 15 years uh, to sort of get it in production. So it's it's not a well understood area and the supply demand has sort of been looming for a long time. And with COVID, it kind of served to accelerate that a little bit, we think. So this could be some of what we're seeing right now. Um, we have tender facilities where we sell everything. We have facilities in Antwerp, uh, three floors before uh, below Tiffany's. And we also have a new facility in Dubai. Everything is sort of shifting to Dubai. Um, they've been very aggressive at sort of taking over uh, a lot of the diamond industry. We kind of like it. Um, we're very, very pleased with the facilities we have there. Um, it's closer to the buyers. Um, it's a day trip for them. Uh, the attendance is excellent. We usually run tenders once a month. We usually have about 200 of the primary buyers from around the world um, that come in for those sales. Um, the prices, as I've said, at recent tenders, we've seen, you know, numbers up around that $300 a carat average, which is extremely good. Um, we're also seeing a higher percentage, uh, a higher percentage of larger stones in the 10.8 carat uh, area. That's simply because the plant is now more refined. Um, it's it's just we're, we're running the full mix of what we will see. Um, you can see on the right, when you look at the chart, um, it's almost back to historical highs. Obviously, we've seen a major drop in the price of diamonds with COVID. Um, everybody's concern was what was going to happen with luxury buyers? Were they going to essentially disappear? Um, you know, what was going to happen? 
And surprisingly enough, it sat for about sort of a six month period. And we actually were kind of in the same boat where we were thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen here with this COVID business? Um, what we've seen and what a lot of the larger guys we dealt with um, reported was that essentially they saw brick and mortar sales drop off dramatically. But at the same time, they saw a massive increase on the online side of things. So it actually may have even not just held up, but it probably even got a little bit better. So the computer it really confirmed that the consumer demand was really strong despite COVID or anything else. Uh, certainly a lot of mines closed due to COVID. A lot that were marginal have shut down. Uh, that really kind of hurt this, uh, you know, the supply. Like I said, there was about 130 million carrots a year being produced, about 130 million carrots being eaten. Uh, a big chunk of that, uh, you know, probably 50, 60%, maybe 60% even more, um, is two main players. Obviously, De Beers, which is now owned by Anglo, and El Rosa, which is the Russian government. There's probably only maybe 20 guys in the world, and it drops off dramatically. The first two, the big guys, produce close to maybe 70 million carats out of that number. Then it goes down to about four or five, then it goes down to one. It's quite a, a rare, uh, rarefied group, uh, to be quite honest with you. Um, so we do expect that prices will remain strong. They're not quite back to the highest levels they've been, but uh, certainly everything we hear, we just closed a sale last night in Dubai um, and everything remains strong. And, and I think we're, you know, we probably got another three or four percent just to get back to where the, the normal highs would have been. Um, now, this project, like I said, we've done a, a tremendous amount of work on it to date. Um, we've, we started out and the way we got this um, essentially was it went through a competitive process. De Beers was looking to go public at the time. Um, they had the bankers uh, review their different projects and sites. Um, essentially, uh, this was not a class A property by any stretch of the means. If you're doing three quarters of a million carats out of the main pipe, you you know, even if your potential was 20, 25,000 carats a month here, um, you're not really too overly interested. But what happens with this, with these countries is they have what's called a use it or lose it policy, meaning that essentially you have to either advance it through and get it into production, or you have to give it up or you have to sell it. And so they put it through a competitive process um, and, you know, multiple parties bid on it. We put together our proposal. Um, it took about two, two and a half years. And uh, ultimately, we were we were selected to own the project. Um, they were never going to give it up. Obviously, De Beers owns about thirteen thousand, or sorry, about thirty thousand hectares surrounding this mine that is is an actual game farm. This is about sixty miles from Kruger National Park, and uh, so it's a, it's an amazing security program if you can imagine with every animal uh, in there. Uh, surrounding this mine. So there was never really any intention on De Beers' part to give this up and let it, you know, be a random deal. Uh, I think obviously they wanted to pick somebody that they trusted who could advance it and work within the boundaries of, of that process. When we bought it, uh, there is no uh, ownership by De Beers. We do not pay them a royalty. We have no uh, right of access. It had to be a clean deal uh, for them to accept it. So that that that's what happened with that. Once we acquired it, um, we did the deal with Tiffany's and then we immediately drilled almost 600 holes. We went over the areas that they were went in. Uh, they had done, we knew that uh, the main goal at the beginning was to get this thing up and running as soon as possible, permitted in that. 
Uh, we advanced it from, at the time, a prospecting right to a full 30-year mining right. We put in the water licenses on that. Um, you know, we put in about 30 kilometers of primary roads, about 20 kilometers of underground water uh, supply lines from seven different boreholes we put in, um, 10 kilometer main power line. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you're dealing with a mine that's four and a half billion dollars next door, um, it's a good idea, you know, it's a really good idea to be independent. Um, we don't want to be controlled by, you know, power or anything else that they might need that would shut us down. So we did all that, uh, you know, site establishment. Um, we installed many, many, many things. Obviously, the water holding dams, uh, housing for 100 people, um, security fencing, you know, on and on and on. This is, it's it's not a, not a, not a short or not, you know, it's not a quicker and, and it's certainly not a cheap exercise to establish a facility like we have. Um, we also put in two large uh, processing plants. Um, we did a lot of development on two very deposit-specific processing plants for this project. Um, the deposit itself, because it's a displacement, because it's a lot of kimberlite, kimberlite breaks down, it has a very, very high percentage of fine material. So, you know, it required the development of a, of a system to be able to deal with that sand in an efficient method, or essentially what happens is, is your, your plant needs to be twice, three times the size, and you need two or three times as much water. So that was, we spent a lot of time on the development of our dry screening plant. Um, what happens is, is the materials recovered from the quarry. Um, it goes to a dry screening plant, which uses no water. And what we do with that, it's 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 quite interesting technology. And, and we, we were one of the core groups that developed over a period of years, is uh, it reduces and removes about 60% of the material that we get out of the, out of the quarry uh, it's about a 500 ton an hour plant. It's a large plant. It removes about 60% of that fine material under one millimeter. Uh, so it's effectively a pre-concentrating method. If you if you look at it, whatever your grade is in the in the quarry, if you're removing 60% of it, um, if your grade in the quarry is five carats per hundred ton, obviously you're you're increasing it to 10. Um, it's a very quick process. It's a very cheap process to do. And that 60% of material then can simply be put back in the pit and rehabilitated immediately. The other 40% just goes to a second main uh, processing plant where we recover the diamonds. Um, again, this whole thing is aimed at reducing costs and water requirements is what it is. So it's a two-stage system. We've got two very large plants and that's the way the material is processed. We also uh, have a lot of heavy equipment, obviously, in place. We, our initially, our efforts were uh, we didn't want to spend the money and, and probably, you know, at the time couldn't really uh, afford to spend the money on heavy equipment. We used contractors. Um, you know, contractors, they are what they are. There's a purpose, but you're getting old machinery. It's not reliable. Um, it just was causing limitations and downtime and things we don't need. In this business, we want to run reliably all the time and get material to the quarry. So we made a decision just before COVID, about four months before COVID, we'd been in discussions with Caterpillar. They liked the project. Um, obviously they have massive amounts of equipment at Venetia. So it works out for everything for us to be associated with them. And uh, we purchased a new fleet of, uh, of Caterpillar equipment, um, which was probably one of the best things we ever did. It gave us really, really significant improvements uh, in terms of the equipment availability times, the cycle times, the speed of the equipment, 
And it really, the stuff we have is able to support, you know, the growth we want to see uh, over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. So that equipment is all in 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 place. Um, it, like I said, what we do right now and the hours we run, the equipment we have will support much higher tonnage. And then as we go forward, we've obviously established a pretty strong relationship with Caterpillar. Um, you know, we've almost paid for this equipment now. Um, so, you know, there it's not going to be an issue when we look at it. If we need additional equipment, we'll add it as we need it. When we look at the plant uh, refinements, we announced a few months back that we had felt like we had some issues. We weren't happy. We had put in the, a few years back, we put in uh, FlowSort, had come out with some new machines. Um, we were not happy with them. Uh, there were some design flaws in them, things we didn't like about them. We did a tailings retreatment exercise that proved our theory. So we ordered uh, what's called the CDX machines, which are De Beers-based machines, and we'll also put in some Bordevashnik uh, Russian machines. But we announced that we were going to change and upgrade these systems. Um, the target was to sort of get the, the them in as soon as possible, with the target being around uh, the end of this uh, September 31st. We're actually probably going to be, be a bit ahead of schedule on that particular item, um, along with some other upgrades. So we're, we're a bit ahead on the stuff that we announced. Um, mining operations, mineral resource management were also refined uh, to lower costs. We did a lot of this before COVID and we're ready to go. And so COVID was really not uh, our friend in terms of delaying things. But all of this stuff that we did, whether it's equipment, upgrades to, you know, final recovery, different things, these are all items that were sort of the final stages in getting prepared uh, to enhance our recoveries for the long term and grow. Um, right now, mining and processing continues to run on a reduced uh, uh, day shift, extended day shift, basically, uh, due to the COVID shutdown and, and then coming off of that. But our target does remain to double our processing volume here that we're doing currently and what you see in the sales and announcements prior to the end of this year. Um, it's like I said, it, it, we're a bit ahead of schedule on that. We're pretty confident with that. <clears throat> Essentially, what we did was we shut down for COVID, which you'll see in, in the future slides. We've now resumed, but we're being a little bit cautious in terms of limiting the hours and stuff like that until we can ever get everybody vaccinated. Um, we've tagged on with the beers. Again, one of the benefits, um, they're going to vaccinate all their guys in the coming weeks. And, and we've also included ourselves into that. So all our workers will get vaccinated and then we'll be comfortable to go back to sort of a 24-7 type of operation. Um, the expansion op operations and upgrades that we talked about, we're going to do in two stages. The first one is designed to double the production and get reliability up on, on the final recovery in that. And the second stage will begin probably sometimes in, sometime in Q4, and it's the introduction of some of the Bornaveshnik machines, which again are aimed at really just increasing volume. Um, reliability of both of these new machines are, are extremely high and we like them a lot. Um, just a quick summary on COVID and what we, we sort of saw there. So back, obviously, everybody knows in March, um, you know, the government of South Africa mandated the COVID shutdown. Um, I remember going to PDAC, the big mining show in Toronto. Um, it was kind of comical. Beginning of March, it hit. Um, I think if it would have hit a week earlier, that show might not have gone, but it went from really positive to everybody being really worried. I remember going down to New York to meet with the Tiffany's guys about setting up a new AM schedule to do repayments. And they were the first ones to say to me, well, you know, we're quite concerned about this COVID thing. I literally got back to South Africa and we had three days 
to shut this entire operation down. So we were really kind of at the stage we're at right now, very excited, and then COVID hit. It was it was not a great, uh, you know, it was very unfortunate, the, the timing, because we had made significant progress and we're really kind of on sort of looking for that to be the inflection point. But despite the lockdown, you know, we, we continued to generate revenues on limited hours. Um, we sold off some stones that we had. Um, expenses were slashed. Um, Caterpillar stepped up. We deferred stuff. We essentially, bigger shareholders stepped up. Um, we survived quite nicely, but obviously we reduced our burn immediately to every degree that we could. By late 2020, we came in, the government announced that they reduced the lockdown restrictions. And we've been, you know, running on, like I say, an extended day shift since then and, and kind of getting things back on track. So we think we're, you know, I like to hope that we're we're 60 days away from this COVID thing being a little bit, you know, not as big of an issue. Um, as I said, we resumed operation. The focus really was to mine higher grade areas, right? Look at areas we did, look at areas we knew and make sure we had good recoveries to keep cash flow good, even though the operating costs were still reduced. Um, targeted efforts on doubling processing volumes uh, at the time of COVID, like I said, those all resumed. That That is really our key priority as we came back to work was, okay, let's get going with where we were. Let's get things back on, tra on track. As I've said, the operations will remain on an extended day shift for the short term, but with the vaccinations complete and stuff like that and, and the upgrades being done, you know, probably this month, we'll, we'll start to increase things as we go forward. Um, we competed, you know, rough diamond sales. We've been completing them smaller amounts, shorter intervals at our Dubai facilities. Um, and like I say, we've been really happy with that, but it served the purpose of getting us cash flow and stuff and minimizing further dilution from this. Uh, we don't feel like we're looking at any kind of a, a requirement to raise any more funds anytime soon. Um, we'd like to see the stock and the, and the valuation recover um, later. Look, if there's a, a reason to uh, dilute, um, you know, for growth purposes, then that would be great. We think we can fund the, all the growth we need out of out of cash flow, and we'll sort of play it a, as it goes. But there's nothing in the in the near term that would indicate that we need to worry about that. Um, our key focuses for say this month forward, uh, we'll finalize these upgrades and refinements. Uh, you know, that that was targeted to be done by the end of September. We'll be a, We'll be ahead of, ahead of schedule on that. Um, the efforts that those efforts really are designed at, at increases of up to 100% in the processing volumes that we're seeing now historically in the last sort of two quarters. Um, we did about uh, we did about maybe just under 5,000 carats in the previous in the March quarter, I believe it was. Um, you know, we generated about 1.2 million US. Um, we'd certainly like to see that number as we go forward now kind of double over the next, you know, won't double this quarter, but we'll certainly, you know, our expectation, we think the potential to increase that number in this quarter is good. And then certainly going into the December one, um, we'll continue to focus on the areas we already know. Um, these areas, obviously, we know them well. They're, they're historically higher potential for higher grades and larger diamonds. And like I say, we identify these areas, we know these areas well, and we'll keep mining them. Um, as we get to the end of the year here, uh, we're going to start looking at expansion into other areas. Um, that'll help in a number of ways, in, including updating the uh, 43-101, uh, those estimates and things like that. 
but uh, there's some areas of, of high interest right now that, that we want to get going on, but we'll start that in the new year. Um, we see sort of the flow of things right now being get the upgrades done, get the company to profitability, start generating some good, uh, you know, increased numbers. Then as we get into next year, we start talking about, okay, we know how much we can operate. Uh, we know what costs, what revenues, uh, you know, are things like that. Now we're going to talk about how big is actually this resource really. Um, we'll also start on that larger, the thing we talked about earlier, that we've got a very large stockpile of oversized material. We'll start that as well. And the idea there is to get through that material and see what we've got for larger stones in there. Um, geological exercises, like I said, I would assume they're going to start probably early 2022. Um, so the key takeaways and, and the opportunity and stuff is the next thing we'll talk about. When we look at sort of the overview, um, really it's very, very straightforward. This is a real high quality late stage project. Um, it's collated with, it's co-located with the beers. Uh, very, very good people in, involved. Majority of this displacement has not, not yet been found or identified. Um, obviously having Tiffany and company involved is, is very good. We have, like I say, probably most of the best buyers in the world attend our sales. So we have some very, very good friends, good people. Um, the infrastructure, um, when I look at the market cap of the company right now, um, you know, I remember back, you know, three, four years ago, these deals, these mining deals are funny. You, you get them, you acquire them, everybody gets excited. It takes a long time to permit. It takes a long time to get everything in place. Um, you know, the stock goes up to, I think we traded as high as a buck 80 at that time. Um, you know, guys get things get delayed. It gets a little long in the tooth and, you know, guys get fatigued and, and it's almost to me, it's almost amazing that I think, you know, when I look at it today and the value proposition today, as opposed to back where we were, it's, it's staggering to me. You couldn't permit this thing for, for what the market cap is, let alone put in all the stuff we have. So it, it is fully built out and it is, there's a lot of infrastructure involved. Um, the supply demand opportunity is very very real if you have gem quality diamonds right now um you know i'm sure i'll get questions about what do you think about synthetics um the short answer de beers has been the leader and involved in synthetics for probably 30 years um it's never going to be a natural diamond and it's kind of like why does anybody spend five thousand dollars on a louis vuitton purse um it really is something that we just don't certainly they'll play a part in things but uh the benefits of uh, synthetics really come in in things like, uh, you know, computer chips and uh, cutting tools and, and things like that. Um, increasing process volumes obviously is is something that's going to make a, you know, we see this current position we're in right now as a real inflection point, uh, a significant opportunity. We've seen the stock move up fairly rapidly in the last uh, little while here, as you can see from the chart. Um, and really, I think that right now, there's a lot of eyes on it, uh, sort of saying, okay, is this is this the actual start? Is this, this is where it's gonna go? Um, it's our job now to deliver, to be realistic and, and not over-promise, but to over-deliver. And so that's what we intend to do. The profitability potential here um, is very, very good. Um, if we look at the costs associated with doubling uh, the, the volumes we do right now, 
and doubling of the revenues, the costs probably going up maybe 20% only. So a lot of it is just additional equipment that is that is more capable of doing what we need it to do. Um, large diamond potential revenues, again, a good 100 carat stone is can be anywhere from a million and a half dollars to say 5 million. Um, if you get an exceptional two, 300 carat, you can be talking essentially near, you know, 10 to as much as the market cap of the company right now. Those are really one-time events. Um, we base everything not on big stones. We base it on what we do in terms of the volumes and what we do in terms of the revenues. Um, so really at this point with the key inflection point we're at, I mean, this is a pretty compelling, uh, you know, valuation where we sit right now um, without question. Um, when we look at this, obviously we trade on the Canadian side, on the venture, we trade on the US side. Right now, 73.4 million shares issued outstanding. The fully diluted number goes to 137. That that fully diluted number, when we did COVID, we didn't want to put out a bunch of cheap paper to essentially the open market, or we would be eating that and sitting at these levels for a long time. Uh, essentially, we raised about $3.5 million. Um, that raise was taken down and that convertible debenture was done by essentially the two largest shareholders in the company, both of which who have never really sold a share, myself, management. Um, in general, it, it's held very, very tightly. Market cap, about 21 million right now. Um, you can see, like I said, the stock as we started coming back out of COVID and getting awareness up, you know, people recognized what was going on. Um, insider holdings, 20%. Really, in the end, um, the float in this thing is very, very small when we take into account that a lot of the bigger shareholders have been in since the beginning and know the deal very well. They're not looking to exit anytime soon. Um, ultimately, just a bit about the people. Obviously, myself, I've been in since the very beginning. Darren, I've dealt with for 30 years. We've been involved in multiple businesses. Dr. Kurt Peterson is, is a really important guy. Um, he's our chief operating officer. Uh, he was longtime De Beers guy. Uh, he's a PhD in mineral processing, probably one of the most famous guys in terms of development, design of plants and fixing of plants for most of the larger players in the world. Um, he was getting to the point where he'd been in South Africa for 25 years, traveled all over Africa. Uh, myself and him are good friends and he elected to come on and run things. I needed a very strong guy uh, as we moved forward on this thing and he loves the project he was at Phoenicia for a lot of years so he knows the potential here uh, Dr. Haggerty uh, probably one of the most famous guys in the diamond industry him and and uh, John Gurney probably uh, Sheldon is uh, another guy I've known for many many years uh, he's an independent director out of New York so with that that is my overview of our company and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions that I can or go back if I've uh, confused anybody on any of this and uh, happy to happy to answer your questions. Dean, that was an outstanding presentation and I guess the place to start is that even though everyone who is watching this presentation is looking for market mispricing, given all of the compelling information the fact that uh, what everyone has been waiting for, it looks like 10, 15 years is finally starting to happen. You've got the equipment, you've got the willing markets, you've got production and sales, somebody is selling. And uh, while the price has moved up, uh, it, it stopped here at 26. 
could you just talk a little bit more about your capitalization, whether you've got people with warrants or options, or if it's actual shareholders that are doing the selling? Uh, I think, you know, look, I, I think that the, the bottom line to all of this is you, you gotta, it, it takes a long time for these deals and there's just no way around it that when you mess up, you are going to pay the price. Um, like I say to the guys right now, you know, it's real simple, guys. If you deliver on essentially what we need to do here, you know, everybody, every stakeholder in this is going to do very, very well. Um, I think what we saw was we saw some, uh, you know, we had some problems with the plant. I, I wasn't happy with the operational guys. About a year before COVID happened, I made a pretty much a wholesale change in our operational guys. I felt they had had enough money and enough time to get this thing to the end zone. They didn't get it done. And I just don't think they have the skill set to get it done. There's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a curve to to move this mine from, say, a smaller mine to a, you know, a mid-tier or a little bit bigger mine. This is not a big mine in, in, in the grand scheme of things. So I think there was just a number of, you know, sort of screw-ups on the way that really hurt us. We had some selling. Um, we certainly saw some selling. And if you look at the volume levels that we did sort of since the beginning of the year uh, compared to previous years, we went through a tremendous amount of paper in terms of cleaning it up while the stock was moving up. And that was a lot of new guys, new different things. We we pretty much feel like it's completely cleaned up right now. We're not seeing any really large wholesale buying. I wanted to make sure that on the convertible venture that we did, that that was in very, very tight hands because we could have easily went out and raised the money we needed to survive COVID and put it out to the general public. But the problem is, is where we were sitting at that time and what the convert was, we'd probably be eating that paper for, you know, ultimately the next three years, at least with the bigger guys being willing to take it down. It allowed them to cost average down a bit. And, and I don't see any of them selling anytime soon. So I think right now the big thing is. What we have to do is, is you know, we, we've never been really overly promotional. Um, I think now is the time to sort of uh, begin that process is what I'm going to do. We're going to bring awareness up. And then really the job is going to be sort of to deliver on, you know, what you're promising over the next quarter, two quarters, three quarters type of deal. There's just no question that the valuation at, at you know, $21, 25000000 million, you know, Canadian is ridiculous. It would be different if... All of a sudden you were looking at it and saying, well, you can't operate, you know, there's no sense in, you know, for every, you know, ton of dirt you move, you're losing, you know, money that that doesn't make any sense. That's not the case here. Um, and so really, I think this has all just been about execution. And it's, you know, I make a joke with guys sometimes that it's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like a golf course. Somebody spends a, a bunch of money building it. It gets sold. The next guy goes broke. And by the time it gets to the end and, and time goes by, the third guy usually makes out pretty good. And I kind of feel like that with the mining deals in general. I, I sort of see it as a cycle where they, everybody gets excited. It's kind of a bit of a momentum play. They get expectations on how long it's going to take. It takes longer. It falters. Maybe they have some false starts on, along the way. But then at some point you get to this inflection point where everything is in place and then it just simply comes down to can you execute on it? And if you do, then the thing just takes off and away it goes. So hopefully that answers your question. Honestly, that was fantastic. If I could just push you back one more uh, uh, click. Uh, mm -hmm. 2016, the stock rose from 60 to a dollar, 60 cents to a dollar American. Yeah. 
yeah. then in 17, it collapsed down to about 30 cents. What yeah. happened? Well, I think it was just that false start. Everybody was excited for it to get going. We had some some issues, I think, operationally. And, and like I said, I wasn't happy. You know, I give the guys sort of every opportunity. I mean, it's not like I don't like the guys I had. It's just they just couldn't execute, right? And uh, that was a problem, and I had to make a wholesale change. Um, I think that if we'd have done what we were doing, like what we're doing today at that time, timing wise, and kept things and momentum going, I, I think it would have been quite good. You know, I, I think we would have continued on. There was a bit of a, a collapse in the market. What we saw at that time as well, I, I don't know if you want to, I mean, at the end of the day, you can make all kinds of excuses. But, you know, what we did see at that point was we had... We had been picked as the number one stock by AGF on BNN on our financial news network for, for a small cap up here. Um, two of the best funds in Canada, AGF and Vertex One, had come in at about, I think, a dollar or a dollar ten for about five million each. And what happened was, is it was right at that time where blockchain and marijuana and all that stuff came in. And we saw a mass exit, uh, you know, exit of, of money out of resource. And those funds both had massive redemptions and eventually both collapsed. So we got kind of caught in a in a bit of a squeeze where, the, you know, I know that both the fund managers very well, they weren't really too excited about selling off our stock our stuff and our stock. And actually both of them still, I believe, hold shares personally in it. But we really got hit with a lot of paper coming out at a very quick time. And uh, it just you know, it eroded down. And, you know, the like I said, we kind of felt like we were climbing back to the point where we were ready to go again. And then unfortunately, COVID hit, which, you know, that there's nothing anybody can do about that. That's just one of those deals that, that was unfortunate. We thought it originally, I remember I was uh, kind of a comical story. I was I was in Johannesburg, COVID hit, and I, I was going to fly out. But then I thought, geez, you know what, uh, you know, I only got three days to shut this down, I better stay put. I thought it might be six or eight weeks, and uh, I ended up in a in in the corporate place there for close to eight months. And the funniest part of the whole story was is I don't watch a lot of TV, and so I hadn't I didn't even have cable hooked up. <laughs> so so you couldn't you couldn't have visitors, you couldn't go out, and I had no TV. But you know, so, so you're now extremely well read, I'm sure. I God, I'll tell you, it was an interesting time. One oh. other one other high level question before Florian really uh, breaks it down. Yeah, you, uh, you said that diamonds are becoming rare. Uh, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about that. I mean, the the number that you say that the world consumes on an annual basis, I yeah. would think that there would be some recycling of diamonds. There could be. Where's it all going and um, yeah. really running out of diamonds? Well, you know, I think that this whole thing, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. It's funny you bring up recycling because I definitely think that that's something that will happen, right? You know, you're you've got this large percentage of people, you know, grandmas, grandmas, all this different stuff like that. You know, you'll probably see diamonds come back in. I don't know if they'll just throw them back in, but you can you can definitely recut, repolish and repurpose them, right? So I definitely see that as, as something that's going to happen. Um, I don't see where we're going to get this massive amount of mines coming on. If you look at it, it's probably without question, the hardest thing to find is a diamond mine, right? I mean, I think out of you know, you can find a, I can't remember the exact number, but it is, it could be more ridiculous than what I'm going to say. And that's that you find a thousand Kimberlites and out of those a hundred have diamonds and literally, you know, 10 might be, might be economical and one is like, it is just such a massive ratio. So, you know, in the industry, when I see guys go out and say, Hey, we found a Kimberlite pipe, it's like, who cares? 
you know, you're so far from the end zone of getting any diamonds into the pipeline. Um, it's just not understanding. If you look at it historically, you had El Rosa, which is the Russian government and still is. You're not getting any information out of them. De Beers and them argue about who's the biggest. Ultimately, El Rosa is the biggest in terms of total carrot production. De Beers is the biggest in terms of revenue. So therein lies the rub. Who's biggest is, is a debate. But they're both very large. But up until Anglo bought De Beers, you know, a few, you know, whatever it was, four or five years ago, um, you know, you really didn't get much information. It wasn't a public company, you know, like and now even it's kind of in with Anglo. So you don't really, you know, it's not like gold where um, the complications sometimes with diamonds are it's it's not like gold, right? Like an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold and everybody follows it and everybody knows what the deal is. Diamonds, there's very, very few public players. So it's not widely followed really what's going on. Um, it's everybody knows about diamonds, but it's not like any other, you know, I hate to call it even, I don't think it's really necessarily a commodity even because, you know, with diamonds, you know, gold and ounce is worth what it's worth. With diamonds, you've got so many variables. You've got grade, you know, you've got, you know, operating costs to get it out. You've got, you know, all these different categories. You can have a 20 carat stone and it can be worth $5,000 or you can have a 20,000 20 carat stone and it's worth 300,000. But there's just no question, there's no disputing that if you take all of the diamond mines in the world, their reserve and resources and their life is pretty well known. And so when you add that all up and you look at it and you do some quick calculation, the world's been eating about 130 million carats for a year for a lot of years. And we've always sort of predicted in a lot of our presentations, I mean, when we first got into this, um, if you can imagine, when we first got into this, Tiffany's, why would Tiffany's do a strategic alliance with us? Well, it was because of Venetia. And it was because at that time they were terrified already about supply. It didn't really play out that way, but we're seeing sort of the same thing now. Um, the other thing that we're sort of seeing coming into play is, you know, lack of, uh, you know, lack of confidence in currencies. Um, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, when we sell stuff, we, you know, the Middle East is is quite, you know, a big area. Obviously, we have a lot of Asian buyers, a lot of Indian buyers, a lot all over the world. But, you know, there's also rumors where guys look at it and say, you know, I'm better off to, you know, I'm not comfortable with some currencies. I mean, I can buy $20 million worth of diamonds that I can carry in my hand. You know, you can't really roll $20 million worth of gold around. So the ultra high net worth guys are really an interesting crowd right now in the diamond business. So, you know, look, I, I think the the writings on the wall, whether it runs out in 20 years or not, is is kind of irrelevant. Um, I'm sure there'll be something else found along the way. But at the end of the day, I, I think that the bottom line is, is that natural high quality diamonds and gem quality diamonds are going to continue. I mean, there's a reason why LVMH or Louis Vuitton paid 17 or whatever billion dollars to buy Tiffany's. They don't think diamonds are going away. And I think what you're going to see with LVMH is they're going to really take Tiffany's model, which is fully integrated, which is what they love. And, and they're going to turn that up a notch and they're going to start, you know, selling some very, very expensive, very high end natural diamonds. So that's a like I say, that whole diamond debate thing uh, is one that you could talk about for an hour. But at the same time, the bottom line is, is, is exactly what it is. You can't supply something that doesn't exist. For now, it seems like it's going to be okay. 
But I think as we go forward three or four years out, if a guy's in the jewelry business, you want to make sure you're you're getting your sources, you know, sorted out. Um, excellent presentation. You answered basically all of my questions already. Um, <laughs> I did that last night very late. I'm like the presentation that I think the one you've seen before, I'm like, now some of these guys aren't going to know anything about the company. I got to kind of make it a, a combination. The only thing would be nice in here that's a little tricky right now is it'd be nice to sort of look at, um, you know, what's the current volume we're doing right now and what's it going to be? Like where we look at it and say, okay, we're doing 60,000 tons a month right now, roughly. We want to take that to 120. You know, the plants may be capable of 300,000 before we have to update it. It might be nice to have some of those charts kind of in there. You have to be careful with regulators because you don't want to, you know, really be, you know, providing guidance in that. I have to kind of speak to what we know. And, you know, obviously what we've announced is, is that we want to double, you know, this, this uh, volume here, you know, very shortly. If you keep in mind that when we get stuff, let's say that we get these upgrades done in, in August, you won't really typically see the effects of that till about six weeks out right because of course i have to run then i have to bring the material in then i have to do all the export out of south africa get it to the deep boil it put it up for sale in antwerp and that or dubai one of the two i don't know if we'll go back to antwerp quite honestly the dubai has been so good for us um but ultimately uh you know this ramp will sort of take place i still expect this quarter you know really it looks very very good at this point to do better like the last quarter was 1.2 million, you know, dollars US based on I think it was 4,600. You could probably correct me. It's terrible that I don't know that number, but I think that's what it was. It was a very limited amount of carrots. It was around 46 or 4,800. And uh, you know, we typically look at right now. We probably break even like GNA everything. We probably break even at about call it 1500 to 2000 carats. I mean, if we're if if we're if we're selling at $300 or $200 a carat, it's probably, you know, 1800 to 2000. If we're selling at 300, well then obviously we're you know, we're probably at 1500. And we certainly don't want to be sitting at a 1500 carat number. We, you know, we you know, I think in the short term, you know, if we look at right now, you know, simple math and mathematics will show a guy that we're doing about 15, you know, 1500 carats, 1800 is what we're getting sold. And like I said, I'd like to see that double. The uh, the nice thing is, is we know we'll spend a little bit more on diesel. We'll spend a little bit more on ferrous silica, um, a little bit more on uh, on power. But the, the you know the 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 doubling of that material, you know, is going to result in in twice the the revenues. But right now, our best guess is is we're probably looking at maybe 20, 25 percent increase in costs. Right, because you're really just adding processing equipment that runs on the same power levels that just run quicker. Right, so so that's where we sort of see. So that's the only thing in this presentation that I kind of think is something that I'd, that I'll incorporate into stuff going forward as we can sort of feel comfortable that we can do some projections. I mean, you want to? I think the only thing that would be better is to have a, a chart that shows where we are today and where you know even we're projecting or where our targets are over the next say. 12, 24 months, right? There's a couple of questions that came to mind while you were giving that answer. How, how do you handle security? Uh, both normal operational security, uh, uh, this is both the inventory and the equipment, 
and then uh, with the uh, civil disru disruptions uh, in the country. How, how are you? How, you? how do you deal with it? Yeah. See, this is one of the, you know, when I talk about the benefits of being co-located with De Beers, um, it's, it's a major benefit on all fronts. Um, the, the civil unrest that they had lately here is, you know, it's always kind of, it's, we always, we always say TIA, this is Africa. It kind of comes and goes. It's usually, you know, it's politically motivated type of deal. You've got, you know, big disparity between rich and poor and, and, and it, things get out of hand. A lot of the stuff we're right up at the very top of the country, um, up by Kruger and, and the national parks up in that area. Um, we didn't see like there was really nothing it was probably a thousand kilometers or more from us a lot of that stuff but it's still an issue you look at in terms of w what's going on with that um so you don't have to worry too much about civil unrest you've got like i say a four and a half billion dollar diamond mine you know they it we're in inside what's called the venetia limpopo game reserve and and trust me if you get to our gates and you go through that gate to get released in it's about 11 kilometers around to the backside of venetia where we're located um, if you broke down in there, you definitely don't get out of that vehicle and start walking around. I mean, we have everything from lions to leopards to, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that's hungry. And so, you know, the beers puts it in place saying, well, we, we're, you know, they, they are doing an amazing job in terms of, of animals and stuff like that. But it does provide a, a pretty significant uh, security system without question. So we do obviously find like in terms of internal stuff. Um, in the diamond business, there's a lot of different stuff that you do. Um, you know, the, machine, the machines and the final recovery and that are all hands off. Um, they're done in glove boxes, sorting boxes, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. When we transport, you know, we never transport on the ground. It's, on, it's in the air. It can be by helicopter. It can be by airplane, random day, night. Yeah, you're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, so we kind of tag on, like I say, we get a huge benefit from being with the beers and then the rest of it is just, you know, normal course business, uh, for the diamond industry, much similar to what, you know, it would be at the bank. Um, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's going to touch money in the bank. And at the end of the day here, somebody's going to touch money there, you know, touch diamonds. It's, you know, it, it's just the way it is. Um, so you do everything in your power to keep, to keep that as tight as you possibly can. The penalties for getting caught with a rough diamond in South Africa and a lot of these countries that are diamond focused is pretty steep, um, you know, 20 year type of stuff. So, you know, there's that element of it too, where, you know, the, the industry is pretty small. If you're not in the industry and you show up with some diamonds, there's usually going to be a red flag. And that's one thing that I do notice about the industry is, you know, it's, it's an industry where you make one mistake or you, there's any speculation that you've done something funky, you're, you're basically out of it. So, so security is definitely, you know, it's something we look at very carefully. But, uh, you know, like I said, if we were out in the middle of nowhere, I would certainly, you know, we could manage it, but I certainly like where we're located. I can guarantee you that. And uh, the, the red... not an issue. Sorry? And transportation also not an issue? Transportation? No, that. no we never do anything on the ground, right? So, I mean, having, we can land, we could literally land a 737 right at the mine. We have like De Beers, we get that, you know, they provide us free access to the airport. So we, we fly in. If we do helicopter, sometimes we'll do all kinds of stuff. We'll, you know, randomly just for workers and that, you know, we'll, we'll take and land the helicopter right at the, the site. 
and, and you know like we're doing a transport there may not even be a transport we'll do all kinds of stuff to just keep everybody on, on their toes and that when we do land nobody knows we come in the material and the, and the diamonds are transported we also don't like to keep many stones on site right and that's the other thing you don't want to do is you want to do regular transports we have a facility at the Brinks building in Johannesburg it's called Paragon um, that's probably the most secure facility in all of Africa houses gold diamonds you name it I mean that place is five levels to even get in with biometrics I mean we use all kinds of biometrics and palm scans and you know we do random lie detector tests you know the guy will come out and it's basically like draw straws it could be me it could be anybody in final recovery if you fail you know the lie detector it it automatically means that it doesn't mean you're going to lose your job necessarily but it just means that you're offside you are absolutely not going anywhere near what we call a red area you know like it's the end of it you know so little things like that that you do could you could you uh, describe uh, uh how many people do you employ uh what what kind of workforce is it do they live it sounds like you know they to and from by helicopter so they must no, spend they, we, we bust everybody in like the only thing that we do is when we're talking transport is everything in or out right uh, we have our own buses and that that we bring guys to and from work we took over uh, a facility that's inside the reserve um, it'll house close to 100 people this operation will never ever be over probably 100 110 people um, we're at about 65 right now um, we were at about 110 before when we were going around the clock um, you know just with with the build and stuff like that um, the workers themselves range from the top end guys which are some of the most experienced guys in the business um, to the bottom guys um, jobs are extremely tough to get there um, we have a very very dedicated and loyal crew and and we try and really honestly try and treat them very well when they come in some of them you know, I, I've got guys that started 10 years ago that, you know, could barely read and write who are now, you know, senior electricians, boiler makers, welders. Um, we give them about one or two years to sort of decide what they want to do. And then we certainly provide the training and everything they need to give themselves a better life. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's a little different than North America. If you train a guy and, and you change his life like that, he's a pretty dedicated employee. So we don't have a lot of turnover. And, uh, you know, we, we generally, now you get the bad, you know, you get like anywhere, you're going to get a lazy person here or there. But uh, in general, you know, we're pretty selective on the guys we hire. And when we do get them, we want to see them, you know, become part of the team and, and away they go. But it's not a huge amount of people. And those guys will come in. You know, we'll work shift work. They'll be there, you know, for sometimes, depending on how the shifts are working, they can be there seven to 10 days, then they'll go home, um, you know, th that type of thing. So, but we treat our guys, you know, like I said, really well, and they're bust in and out. I mean, you're, we have our own medical facility right at the mine. We have our own doctor we share with, uh, with Venetia. Um, you know, this, the state and government, you know, the, a lot of these guys wouldn't get vaccinated. We'll pay, get them vaccinated. We provide them, you know, they get regular checkups. They, uh, you know, we supply them. We have a, a grocery store there. We supply the guys with a credit each month so they can take their food back to their, their houses that we have. Um, the houses are nice. They're, you know, they've got full kitchens, fridges, air conditioning, showers. I mean, a lot of the guys are, they like, 
they don't mind coming to work. So it's it's good. Threat of COVID in Africa? Uh, I think it's it's like there's a lot of areas right now. Um, we've seen a few cases. We're able to manage it pretty good. We limit the guys going in and out right now. But, uh, you know, I think anybody right now that would say that, you know, as a senior executive, you're not keeping your eye on what's going on. Uh, I think you would be, for lack of a better term, full of crap. You got to keep your eye on it right now because these it seems like the resurgence kind of come back. I mean, I don't know. I'll be happy. We think we'll have the guys vaccinated in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's manageable for us because we're so isolated. But uh, yeah, it's it seems to be fairly resilient. And the sooner we can get everybody vaccinated, I think the better off it's going to be. You know, it's definitely one of the items I look at as something that could slow a guy down, but I don't see it as being a real, real high risk, uh, if you know what I mean. I think that if you manage it correctly and keep your eye on it, then you're okay. Any chance of another uh, government shutdown? Well, it's always possible. Um, we've we've been pretty lucky. They, the thing over there is, you know, they they have they did the right thing in terms of shutting it down because you got a lot of you know uneducated people, and and so they shut it all down. And and I think that was a smart thing to try and keep it you know under control. Um, there's always a possibility. I don't think we'd see a full shutdown again. They've been pretty vocal that the country could never afford it. Unfortunately, it means that you know you're going to probably have a higher death rate. Now, that's not something that that Africa is not used to. Uh, I don't think we'll see a full shutdown. I think if we see anything, I think it'll be maybe things like in the cities you would see, you know, curfews, that type of thing. Um, I don't, I don't think we're going to see a Let's just put it this way. It would take something pretty dramatic globally to happen before we would see that happen again. And if that does happen, then it's not going to be us. It's just, you know, affected. it's going to be everybody. So, you know, I, I don't see it. I think that, you know, the, the vaccination program is key. Um, obviously, the first world countries are, are getting, you know, quite, quite uh, advanced in terms of the amount of people they have done. Africa and these other countries, South Africa's obviously a little different than Africa in general. And, and I think that, you know, they'll they'll get things organized here as well pretty quickly. In terms of pricing, um, you talked about 200 to 300 carats, um, yeah. dollar per carats. Yeah. Is that, is that a representative average over all the production or is that yeah. more or less the good stuff? You have to be careful on these small sales, Florian, because you see, and this is why, you know, guys always want to know, how do we do on the sale? How do we do on the sale? And I always say to guys, guys, I know you want information on stuff. The best way to look at the dollar per carat is to take the larger number. And that is what your do average dollar per carat is, right? Like, I mean, you know, the only thing I would say on that 170, I think the 170 number average on the 160,000, a good representative sample, let's say is 10,000 carats. So if you look at selling 160,000 carats and your average is 170, you pretty much know that's what it is. Now, the only thing I would caution guys, and I do caution them for a very specific reason, is that a lot of that material was very fine material, which is lower dollar per carat. And so when I look at it now, if we look at those sales over, say, the last, you know, quarter, two quarters, um it would indicate that our dollar per carat is is getting more in the 2 250 range we're going to see some sales 
especially on small volume. That's one thing that's nice about these upgrades is the more volume that, that you do, the more your sales sort of smooth out. So I always tell guys, I know you all want information, but you know, what are you going to do if I, if I say I've sold stuff for $350 a carat and then the next sale, uh, it goes to 180, you know what I mean? Are you going to punish me? Are you going to think it's good or bad? You know, at the end, I can tell you that our model works extremely well at $200 a carat. And right now it's kind of looking like to me, like that number might be a little conservative, which would be great. Um, but I, I think we're going to end up higher than that. So, you know, I don't understand. There's a couple of mines that have been in the news lately and it's really strange, big mines, you know, multi, you know, billion dollar mines that get built on a, on a basis that they've estimated their dollar per carat is going to be 150 or $200 and they come in at 80. It's like, I don't get how you guys spend a billion dollars before you figure out what your diamonds are worth. Like do a sample, take 10,000 carats out and that's what you got. You know, the only way to know what you're, you know, for us, you know, sometimes when they do exploration, they'll, they'll get guys to independently evaluate or estimate what the dollar per carat is. I'm always of the opinion where, well, there's only one way to know what your diamonds are worth and that's take 10,000 of them and send them to tender and what the guys will pay for them. Well, then that's what they're worth. You know, so I think dollar per carat for us is pretty well established. And so if you think about, you're currently about break even, basically. Pardon me? You're currently basically break even, let's say. Yeah, I think that this quarter, like, will show that we we may do a little better than that in this quarter. It'll kind of depend. Like, I mean, look, we're only, uh, we just finished the, the, we did a little bit of a sale at the beginning of July. Now another one that just, uh, we started on the 28th. I'll put out an update to guys based on what we sold in, in July. Um, I'll also let them know that we're maybe a little bit ahead of schedule on the uh, on the upgrades. But I think that that's going to be one that's going to maybe guys are going to look at and sort of say, okay, well, this is interesting, right? If we look at it, because I'm always looking at last quarter. I don't want to see this thing go, you know, from 1.2 way up to a number that we can't sustain or keep it's the same thing as the diamond sales i don't want this thing really necessarily bopping all over the place i'd like to see a nice steady smooth achievable ramp that just shows growth not from one stone or anything else i mean when we look at it we build our model based on what we get average dollar per carat for run of mine if we get a big stone it's worth four million dollars that's a you know that's a you know that's a different story that's just a bonus there's really no cost associated with it I mean, we expect to get some big stones, and I love the idea because I would dump them onto the balance sheet, get rid of all our debt. That's one of my main goals is by the end of the year, I'd like to see the balance sheet completely you know, rid of a majority of the debt and, and have a good cash position. Because I think that's one of the things right now that you know, guys wonder, are you going to need money? Like we know internally and say, okay, well, we're golden right now. We feel real comfortable that we're, we're not going to have to raise money. But when you look at the balance sheet and that, and you get the consolidated financials from that side and this side, it's not like we have $3 million in excess. Now, if you didn't have the debt sitting on there and you had $3 million in excess in the bank, I dare say that guys are going to say, well, if they're going up by half a million to a million dollars, you know, in earnings per month uh, and the balance sheet's pretty cleaned up, I think that's where, you know, that that really carries us into next year. That's sort of a gear, you know, deal I've said to the guys is we want to have this thing cleaned back up by the end of the year. And then the other thing I think that once the numbers look really good and you see good good you know earnings and good revenues, um, then I think that that it turns into okay, 
now how can you make this bigger and how much resource, you know, how much of those 50 million carats are you going to be able to find? And I think that's why when we look at a drilling and exploration program on top of this, I mean, we can do a bulk sample for literally like $50,000. I mean, guys in northern Canada, it costs them $2 million. I mean, it's very, very easy for us to do drilling and bulk sampling with this to, to, to you know, to expand the resource. And at this point, we 3D model everything. So we've got areas that we've already identified. I just won't let the guy spend any money on doing it right now until they get the plant in order and we're making money. You know, like uh, that's that's the key. But I think next year will be a fun year in terms of exactly finding just how much is out there. And I think once that's defined, if you can look at it and say that you're, you know, because right now, by the time you figure it and look at it in our modeling, we think the potential is somewhere around, call it $5 a ton operating costs and maybe as much as $15 a ton in revenues. We think that potential is there. Once you figure in taxes, black empowerment, all the different stuff that goes along with with operating anywhere, you know, if we could run it like 50 cents on the dollar, that that would be our our target or what we're we're aiming for. So then it just comes down to tonnage and how much product do you got, you know? So, you know, but there's still a long ways to go, like I say, on this project, that's for sure. It's it is a real key inflection point. And the only thing that really out of all of this, the thing I said to our internal guys over and over and over is, guys, this is just all about execution right now. That's all it is. Everything else looks really, really good. And guys are going to watch, you know, um, what I see now is you'll get the early adopters, the guys that are a little more risk, you know, tolerant. Those guys are going to come in here when we get to 50, 60, 70 cents, whatever it is, if we can get up to those levels and then start putting out some real concrete results over the next quarter of that, then it's going to change a little bit and we're going to see some bigger institutional guys sort of start to say, okay, well, I kind of like this now. You know what I mean? It's they don't they don't care whether they get in here. They want to they want to see just a little bit more proof before they pull the trigger, right? So I think we'll get some buying here, and I think we'll get buying all the way through. The one thing that I'm going to do definitely is I'm going to definitely put some programs in place now. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit more than what I normally would on. You know, I don't refer to it as IR so much as as awareness. I just like getting in front of the right groups, telling them the story. And usually once I can tell them a story, then, you know, they're, they're, they usually stick around. If they're, you know, unless we really screw up, then, you know, they're, they're pretty much long-term shareholders. I try and keep everybody abreast of what's going on so that they can understand the deal and make a, a reasonable judgment on what we're doing. Uh, I want to quickly touch on the debt again, because yeah. you currently released your financials uh, last, yeah, last Friday, sure. I think. Yeah. And it says six million is current debt. Yeah, I know. So, it's so the these, are, these, are, these are the kind of details, I think. You're new to the company. You don't know anything about right. You, you look at it and you, you see say, stuff what? like this. Yeah, and what the heck is going on? Yeah, like is it going to be, a, you know, is it something that's going to drop dead? It's IFR, you know, IFRS treatment and, and auditors, right? And I always, it's funny with the auditors, I always want them to put it and, and categorize it as they will. I'll argue a little bit, but it is what it is. Same thing with going concern. You know, they'll say, well, we're going to put a going concern statement. And I'll be like, well, who cares? Why wouldn't you put it in? You know what I mean? I don't know, understand why guys fight so hard for, for different things, right? But when you look at the debt, you're right. If we look at it, there's basically a few items. One, you have the Tiffany stuff, which is about, what, four and a half million or something like that. Um, yeah. It's basically, in our understanding, it's, you know, look, it's going to have to be repaid. 
or at least a portion, or maybe we can make some sort of agreement. But Tiffany's is, they have no interest in running this mine, owning it or anything else. In fact, you know, I, I was told by certain people that that money's already been written off. You borrowed 10, you gave 10 back, the rest we'll get when we get. Whether that's true or not, uh, you know, who knows? But at the end of the day, we look at it and say, we've got to pay them back at some point, but they'll be very reasonable. The Caterpillar debt shows up on there, but essentially, you know, that that equipment is probably, we've already paid for maybe half or a little more of it even, right? So that one I'm not too worried about. There's some debt that shows up as black empowerment uh, debt for, for, the, for that. Um, there's no set returns of payment. And then the other one that, that is the larger portion is the convert. And, you know, when we were looking at bank financing and stuff like that during COVID, they had a hard time getting their head around the, the, the debt that's associated with this, the convertible debenture. And like I said to them, if we're trading at 30, 35 cents and it's the largest shareholders and they've never sold a share, I can put you in touch with any one of these guys. They are definitely converting that paper out at seven cents and that debt is going away. So I sort of see what's going to happen. What I look at before the end of the year here, I'm not sure the date, but I think it's November or something that that seven cent uh, that uh, that convert stuff that's going to go away without question that that portion of it. The cat stuff, we pay it down by about a hundred and I'm going to say around one hundred thousand dollars a month uh, for the Caterpillar end because about maybe 16 months left on the cat stuff when we own it. Um, the Tiffany stuff, we'll kind of deal with that when when we deal with it. Um, with Louis Vuitton now involved, I said to the guys, I said, all it's going to take is one nice stone and that debt will be gone because they'll probably want it, um, given what I think that Louis Vuitton is doing. Um, and the way that the stuff with the Black Empowerment works is it's proportionate. So we have right now loans recorded with the South African Reserve Bank, where essentially about the first, I think it's around 30, 35 million that comes out of this. Um, you know, is is able to be brought back here with no no issue whatsoever. Um, and what we did in the agreements that no matter what gets paid out in dividends or money out uh, for that stuff, it's always proportionate. So I think the the balance sheet shows, you know, Nazal at about a million dollars or a million and a half or something like that. Us at about maybe 30, 35 million. So, you know, it's a 35 to one deal. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't care, nor does anybody else care that you're going to, I don't think it matters whether you're in Canada or Africa or wherever, you, you know, you're, you're going to pay, you know, some fees. You're, you're going to have somebody involved, whether it's native groups or black empowerment or whatever it is, it's just the way it is. It kind of should be. I mean, it's their country, right? A quick question about the warrants. And before I go to that, I want to just acknowledge you have a new homepage and yeah very com first of all the, the homepage is great and second of all uh very commendable you have the whole cap structure this is how much warrants there are, how much options how much all in fully diluted shares there's not yeah. a lot of companies that are so transparent so now you get it. like you can that. it's more important to me who holds them you know what i mean and, and that's the big thing because that's what's going to hurt you is yeah. you know your capital raises i mean I literally, when COVID happened and we had to do that CD, I mean, we, I tried everything. I tried to get COVID funding from government. I tried to get, you know, support from all different kinds of areas to, to eliminate any need to dilute. And so when that was just not happening, I mean, we got approved by the government of Canada 
And then at the 11th hour, they basically just turned tail on everybody, not just us, and wouldn't back the like they wouldn't uh, secure the loans at the bank. So I really thought we were going to get away with maybe a little bit of minimum dilution. What happened when we did the raise was I then turned to a point of saying, okay, well, I need to just make damn sure that we put together a plan for the main bigger shareholders here that's attractive enough for them that they will take down this raise and help us survive. Because if you put that out, it's whether it's warrants or options or otherwise, man, I'm telling you, it it's a it can be a limiting factor on your stock as opposed to you know if a guy who's worth 250 or 300 million dollars um you know if he doesn't necessarily really care he's going to look at it he's a financial guy he's going to say no i think the stock's worth three or two or four bucks he ain't going to sell it at 80 cents on the way up just because he got some cheap paper you know that's just the way those guys are going to be so yeah it's important who holds it there's no doubt about that the big thing is, is obviously the warrants that sit with the, the CD are at 15. Um, you know, there's some, the options are at about 11. Um, but again, it's the, it's the management insiders and obviously everybody has to report there. Um, there's some 30 cent, I repriced those 30 centers. There was some warrants from historical, I think the raise was done at about, God, I think it was done at about, 40 cents or 45 cents a few years back. The reason I repriced them, number one, I think that if you can, if you need the money or you think you might need the money, you're better to reprice options. So many guys or warrants, so many guys issue warrants and guys never get in the money. The idea of the warrants is to raise additional capital with no fees. And so they were at 60 cents. The groups that were involved in that raise were very, very good groups. They had supported us all the way along. Um, I extended them at 30 to 30 cents, uh, but I also put an accelerator on it. Uh, at 37 and a half cents, if it trades for 10 days, it generates about 1.2 million, um, which obviously we, we would use, uh, you know, whether it be to do debt or, for, or further expansion. So I expect those will come, those 30 centers will probably get triggered here. You know, we're sitting at about 30 cents right now. I don't see it being a big stretch that with some with a good quarter, this one, I think they're going to get triggered. I mean, I know the guys who hold the majority of them and I've already told them, you know, just be prepared for the fact that those those 30 centers are probably going to get triggered. Right. And I mean, some of them, if they don't want them, they can let them drop off. Hey, if they if they don't want to exercise and let them drop off all the better, you know, that's better for me. But I, I doubt I think most of them will. Most of them will do it um coming back to the operating model you obviously can't give too much sort of forward-looking statements but i mean we know you're currently about break even maybe maybe a little bit yeah. positive and yeah. you're about to double your volumes you're about yeah. to double the amount of carrots you sell right. we know costs will be about 20 25 percent higher we know That's the pricing very is very good and it's very easy to sort of build a very easy model based on that information alone and see really that the company's total steel fully yeah. delivered, even just from that. And yeah. that is just what you do in the next current months, basically. That's on, based on your run rate in the next, towards the end, let's say. Yeah, and the market cap becomes the biggest thing because this would be much more difficult, Florian, if, if say you're trading at 100 million market cap, the upside is just, it's not, you know, that that's tends to be what happens. If you look at it, 
say years ago when we were trading at a dollar, dollar, you know, whatever the number was, dollar fifty, even dollar thirty. To me, I would dare say that you know, there's obviously way more risk then to what there is now. I mean, you're launching from, you know, like I said, twenty-one million dollar market cap Canadian right now. Uh, I, I have no issue saying that to go out and try and acquire permit and get even a tenth of what we've got done in place. Number one, it would take you four or five years. And number two, you just never do it for the amount of money. Your burn rate on just your GNA and your corporate and filings and everything would eat, you know, almost the market cap in that period of time. So it's really like when, you know, lots of guys look at it. I think that the, you know, there's a lot of guys right now that that I know very well that are long-term guys and they just sort of shake their head and go, well, you know, right now, you know, outside of it just completely imploding on itself, it's, you know, there's, it's hard to imagine there's a lot of, uh, risk here and 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 pretty much what you're just looking at is is, is what is the upside going to be you know like what what is it going to be so is it going to be you know worth 200 million 300 million 400 800 what's it going to be and my simple answer to that is is that in my mind when i look at it you know i've always kind of envisioned that you know there's going to be additional stuff in the area and i've always said hey look the potential on this thing is to get it to you know somewhere in the four to five hundred million dollar market cap i think that that you know could be you know a reality uh, i don't see that as being a stretch and that that would be something that i think would be reasonable as a target um if you go out and you find additional resources and and that in the outlying areas then i think all bets are off then i think change change quite dramatically you're never going to find 50 million carats let's put it that way but if you could find five to ten you're talking about a billion to two billion us gross at today's numbers and that's basically at a 200 dollars per carat average um i think that that's going to become a little bit of a like i said that's that's a bit of a wild card because we used to use 200 and think geez man 200 is going to be nice and now if we sell stuff and we don't get you know near there or over there we're, we're we're pretty disappointed right but you know we think that as we do bigger volumes we'll see more bigger stones we see enough bigger stones now but the key in the volume is is that it really smooths a lot out um it's good for the sales because you with more carrots you can sort your packages a little better you should do a little better on your dollar per carrot just because of that naturally so Hey, Dean, that 91 carat stone in your pictures, what what happened to that? I, we sold it. You know, it was funny at the time. I remember we were we were working at the time and uh, uh, it was tight. Cash was tight. And I remember the operational guy at that time. I said, well, you know, get out, you know, see what you get. See, you know, let's see what we can get. I'll start kind of, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do for money. And it was it was comical because we have a secure network thing, and he sent me a picture of it. And he said, uh, uh, "Would something like something like would something like this do?" And it was kind of comical because I sent him a note back saying, "Yeah, go find one of those." And then the phone rang, and he's like, "No, I'm not kidding you. That we just found that. Like it just came out." And so it was kind of hilarious. We sold it, I think, for about a million and a half bucks. Um, it was a weird stone. I mean, obviously, we at the time. We weren't really in a position to do much on the way of marketing. I think we'd get way more for it today and we'd market it properly there. At that point, it was a godsend. We got, you know, a million, million and a half bucks for it or whatever it was. And uh, but it was a really strange stone. It went to a collector because it's it's not usual to see that big octahedron in that shape like that. Like, that's phenomenal, that stone. It, it really was a unique stone. 
Um, it went to the Middle East. It went to a collector. I don't believe he's ever cut it. I think it's in a collection, a personal, like a private collection, is what my understanding is. We don't ask a lot of questions as to where where stuff goes, but um, you know, it was a weird stone because it was it was a little bit yellow. Um, it was it was a stone that if it was two colors more white, it would be a three million dollar stone, and if it was two or three more colors yellow it would have been a 10 or 15 million dollar stone so it was right in the middle zone it was it was just an odd odd stone but uh i i like i said the, the sale of that at the time was really provided us with quite a uh, you know quite a good cash injection and so it served its purpose um you know well it but, sure is a lot of fun to to see the picture and to know the story yeah, it's just disappointing that, you know, Kurt is, like I said, he he was at Phoenicia and intimately involved in their plant and final recovery for about seven years, designing it and and, and that for them. Um, I can't stress him enough how, how you know, how respected he is in the industry. Um, he definitely, like I say, he's one of the only guys with a PhD and, and he is a diamond guy. He is really disappointed. Uh, well, I don't know if disappointed is the word, annoyed at this point. That that he hasn't uh, seen anything, or that we haven't hit anything over the hundred mark. You know, for us, ninety-one is yeah, it's not a hundred yet. It's kind of the one in front. So so we kind of joke about that. With I told him, I said maybe we'll never see one. He's like, I've seen. He goes, they're there. He goes, we just gotta go through a lot of volume here. He goes, we're not moving enough dirt. You know, so I don't know. It'll be fun though. I mean, we always when we set this thing up, the discussion with a lot of the shareholders was we get it up, we get it running, we minimize dilution, we get to profitability. Then we we establish sort of a base dividend, you know, because it's always a debate whether you put the money back in, whether you take it out. I always said to guys, well, let's put a small dividend maybe in place or whatever. In the end, that could be a plan. And then once every six months, we do a special dividend for big stones, you know, stuff like that, I think, is. You know, I mean, you got to keep growing, and and as a public company, we've got a long ways to go. But you know, if I look out three, four years, um, you know, I already consider and look at stuff right now, saying what other stuff is there around that maybe De Beers, Alrosa, other majors have that are too small for them to really be focused on that maybe we could get involved in. You know what I mean? That that would help us to grow our business out. So I think it's first order of business, get everything up and sorted. Second order of business, start exploring and get the upside of the property. And then third thing would be, what are you going to do in the future? You know, what other deals can you do with the majors or, or quality projects that you you can, you know, be of use and acquire or add? Because I don't really want to take the money we're making. You know, I don't want to throw good money at bad. Let's put it that way. Like I've said to guys, if they think we're going to take money, we have profitability and throw it in an expiration program in the North Pole. They are sadly mistaken because that is just stupidity. That 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 is not uh, a good idea at all, in my opinion. Especially not in this business, too tough to find. You know, you're better off to buy something that is proven or something that has, you know, tailings or something less exciting that just generates revenue. I'm I'm all over that. Can you talk a little bit about your own background before you came to yeah, this project? For sure. I, you know, I grew up in, in the prairies in Canada, in Saskatchewan, um, you know, pretty simple farm hockey background kind of deal. Um, I was always sort of a business guy. I had, uh, you know, some telecom and cable company stuff that I did. 
Um, I got involved with uh, a friend of mine started, uh, you guys in the US have direct TV. We had Star Choice and, uh, and Express View, I think it was called. Um, I kind of ended up in the commercial end of that doing uh, big cities and I ran, you know, did the commercial division for Shaw, one of our, there's two very large cable companies up here. So I, I worked with them and, and got sort of involved in acquisitions. Then we sold the whole thing back to them. Uh, we had established, we grew it out into, we had offices in Vancouver, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, Halifax, Montreal. We had offices all across the country. We sold that all back to the cable company. We, our job was to develop the, the satellite cable business in all the major cities, and then we sold it back to them. They bought it back in the end. Then I went and worked for DirecTV on their commercial side of things out of New York for about six years. Um, that was more focused on acquisitions and stuff. And then uh, did pretty well on all that stuff and sold off everything that I had. And I built a house in the Okanagan in Kelowna and was going to take it easy for a year or two. And I, I absolutely hated it. I'll never retire again. And this deal, oddly enough, I mean, all businesses are basically the same, as we all know. Um, this one, some guys had approached me about whether I wanted to put capital into it or raise capital for it. I turned them down three or four times, said no, 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 no. Uh, they finally sent me to South Africa. And the thing about this deal that intrigued me is once I got to South Africa, I met with the De Beers guys. And once I could see that I could actually acquire, you know, production ready stuff from from De Beers, I went back to New York. I talked to some guys I knew there that that were intimately involved in some of the funding of Big Diamond Mines. And, uh, you know, they they just laughed. They said, you know, it's a great idea, but it's going to cost you a billion dollars. And I'm like, no, no, no. And so in the end, what I did was I went back to the guys who wanted to raise money and I said, I don't really like your guys' management style or anything else, but um, I'll put money in and some of the guys I know put it in, but you guys basically are out. We took the company it had about, it only had about 32, 35 million shares in it. We rolled it back to 3 million and took it over from them along with the operational group. And then I cleaned it up and the whole deal was really based on, could I get an acquisition done from De Beers? Right. So we put our money in on that basis. Then as soon as I got the acquisition done with De Beers, uh, the next step was, OK, how are we going to do this without dilution? And that's, of course, I cold called everybody in the in the industry, the bigger guys, you know, like uh, Tiffany's, Graf, Lev Lviv, all this stuff. And it was kind of funny because we did the presentation to Tiffany's and they loved it and said, yeah, we're in. So that was where it all started. And I thought the whole thing was going to take me about five years or seven years. Well, five years, I think, was my original number and a little longer than five years. <laughs> but it's it's very it's a it's a fun business and so I like it so you know that's that's kind of my background I'm not uh, as I always used to say it to the guys at at uh, Shaw I'm not an MBA but I've had a number of them work for me over the over the years so I I've picked up a few things you know and and the other thing is too is I you know we've got a lot of really good people involved so my job is kind of the circus director of the whole affair but uh yeah that's that's what the deal is well dean this Excellent. is the sec second time i've had a chance to talk to you and um you get you get more impressive uh, as you age uh, <laughs> thank you very much for all the all the information yeah happy to do it anytime um like i said if you anybody that's on um if they want um you know, Florin, you've got my numbers and that and my contacts and that. Anybody that wants, um, if they have additional questions or they want an update, uh, 
you know, at any time or whatever. My phone is on. It doesn't matter where I am. Um, it's on 24 hours a day. So if somebody phones, I don't care whether you got a thousand shares or five million. I don't care. You know, give me a call. It's our company, and I'm always happy to talk about what I can and and what's going on. So. Well, Anytime. Florian keeps us uh, well informed, but I'm I'm looking forward to having you back when there's something very yeah, interesting think, to talk about. Yeah, no, I think it's like I said, as we get sort of through the end of this quarter, the September one, I think it's going to be kind of a bit of an inflection point. And I, I think, like I said, I'm going to increase kind of the awareness stuff right now because I want to kind of get ahead of that two or three months so that, you know, as guys start watching it, I'm not really looking for them to pull the trigger and buy a whack of stock. I just want their kind of eye on it so they recognize the value proposition. And then when we put up the results and that and demonstrate, then then that's when it goes, you know. But I, I think, like I said, this is pretty this is pretty easy, in my opinion, from these levels. So we'll see. Fantastic. Hey, guys, thanks, thanks for taking the thanks time. Thanks so much, Dean. Good you luck bet. with your travels. Hey, no worries. Cheers, guys. Stay well. Some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers, not breakout investors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither Breckon Investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor. No one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.